1 Samuel chapter 23, I'm going to begin in verse 14. 1 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 14. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horash. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horash and strengthened his hand in the Lord. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horash, and Jonathan went home. The first thing we learn here from this passage about surviving the wilderness is that you need help from faithful friends. One of the ways God helps us survive in this life and in our journey of faith is help from faithful friends. And this is where you see Jonathan come in and out of the picture. I believe this is the last time recorded in Scripture where Jonathan and David are going to be together. But Jonathan is a faithful friend to David. So notice David's in the wilderness. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Look at what Jonathan does. He strengthens David. Uh, specifically, he strengthens his hand in God. He, rem- he reminds David of the truth. We're going to see here, he reminds David of the, the promises of God. So friends, here's one of the things. When people go through distress or are going through distress, you, you can oftentimes feel like, I have nothing to say. But the reality is you do have something to say. You have the word of God. And, and certainly just your presence there would be helpful and good. But look at what Jonathan does here in David's distress in verse 17. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Now, how did he know that? How did he know that? Well, because God has made that very clear to David back in 1 Samuel 16. It's it's clear what God is doing. God is bringing David to the throne. Now, the account of these ten chapters is how God's going to bring that about. And the way God brings it about is through distress. It's through the wilderness. That's how he's going to bring David to the throne. So what Jonathan is doing here is he's sharing what God has already promised. This is one of the things we can do when we try to encourage other Christians. We can share the promises of God. The Bible is full of promises. We have far more promises as Christians than David or Jonathan knew. Far more. Just in the book of Romans, you have more promises probably than David or Jonathan knew. It's astounding the promises God has given us. One of the things I want to show you, if you look at 2 Corinthians 1.20, is the fact that all these promises of, of Scripture find their ultimate fulfillment in and through Christ. This is how central Jesus Christ is in God's plan and God's working. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. This is why when you think about the promises of God, they all point to Christ. And this is something we can always share with other people, particularly as they go through distress. You can also share psalms with people. Again, we have more outlets and availability of sharing the truth of God's Word than any generation in history. You can text Scripture to friends. You can email Scripture even to to Christian friends that you're geographically separated from. Certainly we can and should do it for one another. I think the best thing we can say to one another is what God says. Particularly in distress, we don't always have the words to say. God's advice is always better than any advice we can give. And we can share what God says. We can give encouragement to Christians 
in times of distress. I often think of and remember uh, the, the, the death scene of Augustine, uh, one of these historic Christians from the past uh, who, who was so profound in the way God used him to shape uh, and encourage Christians really down through the generations. I mean, think about it. He lived in the 300s and his books are still in print today. It's just astounding the influence he had. But Augustine, when he was nearing death, what he wanted was he wanted the Psalms written out for him and the Psalms pasted on the wall of his room where he was dying. And he had friends do this for him. And incidentally, he asked people to not come in and visit him so he could read the Psalms. And you know why? So he could repent. So he could make sure that he was ready to meet God. But he had friends to help him. And and I think there are seasons in life regularly that we need other Christians to help us. This is part of what the Scripture teaches us about the church, is that the members have the same care for one another. We need to strive to live that out. And I'm a bit of an idealist when it comes to the church. I think in terms of what the Bible says, that's what we should do. And knowing the reality is we're all imperfect at it. But as Christians, we should strive to help one another. And the picture in the Bible of the church is a body where every member has a vital role. And the members strive to care for one another. One of the things that means for us is we need to willingly express when we have need of help. Oftentimes we like to be guarded or don't like to share the realities of our life with other Christians. This should not be the case for brothers and sisters in the church. We should be willing to frankly and honestly talk with one another about the needs that we have because we believe in the power of prayer and other people praying for us will help us. We need to care for one another. My hope, and again, it's a bit idealistic, but my hope would be that the best friends Christians make are in the church. That should be the case. Other faithful believers, brothers and sisters, these are the best friends we should make in the world. It should be in the church. And and friends, we know none of of that is perfect, but what we can do is strive to be that for other people. And even though people people always will fail us, we know that. And we know God won't ever fail us, Christ will never fail us. And people, no doubt, you've been in the church for a while, people have failed you. But let's not let that make us bitter. Let us strive to be a friend and a caring person to other people, particularly when they go through the Wilderness. Again, it's idealistic, but you have biblical pictures of it. Jonathan and David are a good picture. Praise God for this friendship. You think of Paul and Barnabas. Paul met Barnabas in the church. We have every reason to believe. Paul met Timothy through the church. You read Paul's letters, look at the end of Romans. All these people he's talking about are people that he's ministered and served the Lord with. Onesiphorus, particularly. At the end of 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, again he's writing about how great it was to have Onesiphorus as a friend to encourage him. Paul the Apostle, Paul is this, this, this incredible, towering figure in the history of the church, and yet he recognizes the important place of faithful Christians all around him. And we need to be that for others. We need to be there. Uh, again, I would just, this is just yet one of the other examples that shows you the reality of the church is not merely a loose affiliation. It's not merely an event. It's a group of brothers who help one another through life. David had that. He had help from a faithful friend. Now pick it up in verse 19. When the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakaliah, which is south of Jessamon? Now come down, O king, 
according to all your heart's desire to come down and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Now look at this. They give, him, they give Saul specifics. These are the Ziphites. Remember, David is in the land of Ziph, the wilderness of Ziph. And these Ziphites tell Saul, David's hiding among us. He's in these strongholds. Notice he's on the hill of Hakaliah, which is south of Jeshimon. So very specific. This is where David's at. Now what is tragic about this is the Ziphites are part of the clan of Judah, which incidentally is David's family. In this text, David's family betrays him. David's own clan betray him to Saul. And look why they do it. O king, according to all that's in your heart, the murderous thoughts that are in your heart. We know you want David dead because you're such a jealous loser. We know you want David dead. Come fulfill that desire of your heart. In fact, we'll help you. Our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Wow, won't we be great? Think they're doing a favor. Think they're being faithful. Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord. I mean, my goodness, Saul's religious speak is everywhere. For you have had compassion on me. He's always self-centered, focused on himself. What a, he's a man of self-pity. He's pathetic. Verse 22. Go make yet more sure. Because again, David has already slipped out of the grasp of Saul numerous times by this point. And it's going to be several other times. So Saul wants to make sure, go make sure. He's a, they've already given him specifics about where David is, and, and Saul, but Saul wants to be all the more sure. Go make sure. Verse 22, know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. So, so Saul, Saul is not underestimating his enemy here, his prey. Let's, let's find out where he travels, where he goes. Let's learn his ways so we can hunt him like an animal and put him to death because he's cunning and he's good at escaping. Verse 23, see therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out from among the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Well, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? Well, let me direct you to Psalm 54. Because it was in this specific experience that David wrote Psalm 54. So in the Psalms, it's about 10 of them. About 10 of the Psalms tell you the specific context with, uh, of which they were written. And almost all of them were written that the, the, the give you the context during this wilderness experience of David. I believe it's about 8 out of the 10. Here's one of them. Psalm 54, which the point here is, how do you survive the wilderness? Well, we're going to learn from David how he did in Psalm 54, betrayed by his own family, the king chasing after him. What does David say? Psalm 54, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? In, in, incidentally, for those musicians out there, David writes a song. David writes a song for the people of God to sing. Isn't this interesting? And out of the, this experience, uh, out of the, 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 the experience of his heart overflows this song about God. Look at it in verse 1. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. The first thing you learn here is that you request deliverance. You request deliverance and vindication. David's been betrayed by his own family. David's been betrayed by his king. He, he asked God to save him. He asked God to vindicate him. And far better job God can do in vindicating us than we can do. 
Verse 3, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. We request deliverance. Now look what David says in verse 4. This is, this, is, this is what he often does. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. How do you make it in the wilderness? God helps you. How do you survive? God upholds your life. He's your helper. You recount the character of God. This is what God is like. You remind yourself, he's my helper. This is, again, this is, this is what makes David great, his utter dependence and reliance on God. Verse 5, he will return the evil to my enemies. In, their, in your faithfulness, put an end to them. He recounts the works of God. He's calling on God to return the evil on them. He's looking to God to take vengeance, not himself. Verse 6, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Notice in verse 6, I will give thanks. In the context of making offerings to God, I will give thanks. He resolves to worship. You'll find this all through the experience of David. How does David deal with distress? He resolves to worship. Worship is a resolve. Coming to church to worship God is not about how we feel. It is about I will give thanks to God because of who God is. And God does not change despite our circumstances or our experiences or how I feel on Sunday morning. Which for many of us is not good. But God still is worthy and glorious. And David says, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. In verse 1, he calls upon the name of God to save him. In verse 6, he resolves that he will worship the name of God. This is how we should view worship. Worship helps us in the times of the wilderness experience. Thanking God helps set our perspective right, knowing that God has good plans for us that he will bring about. A psalm is born from the experience of verses 19 through 24 where you see this betrayal. And you see Saul planning and plotting to hunt David down like an animal. One final point here at the end, in the middle of verse 24. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David, and his men to capture them. Just, just the, the, to me, it's very interesting and intriguing the, the network of spies both of these guys have. Saul knows where David is. David knows Saul's coming after him. And here we see Saul's really close. Keep in mind, there's about 600 men with David. By the way, they're identified as criminals. So David goes from leading soldiers, trained soldiers, to now he's leading criminals. And Saul's hot on his heels. Saul is about to take him. And David knows it. And look at what happens in verse 27. He's about to capture them. Verse 27. A messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. Now if you've been reading the account thus far, this is strange. This is very strange, and here's why. Because the Philistines have been coming against Israel since the beginning of 1 Samuel. 
The Philistines are in the, the ascendancy of power. Essentially, those, the only ones that have had victory over the Philistines have been David and Jonathan. And, and this, the text is made very clear thus far that Saul has been very hands-off, very doulous in dealing with the Philistine threat, which incidentally was his job as king. And he's, he's essentially up to this point done nothing. Isn't it odd? He's about to capture David. This is his heart's desire. He's about to capture David. And now there's this message of the Philistines and he leaves to chase them. This is bizarre. Do you know what this is? This is the providence of God. This is the providence of God. Verse 29, and David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Do you know why David escapes here? David escapes here because of God's intervention. If you go back up to look at what we began with in verse 14. This was another time when Saul thought that he had David. Verse 14, David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country, in the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand, which I would argue is the main point of this chapter. God's not giving David into his hand because David is going to be king. God's going to deliver him. God's going to bring him to the kingship and to the throne. God did not bring him into his hand. And I think that's exactly what this paragraph is about. Now let me give you a warning. A warning about preachers. Because preachers like to read their theology into the text. Every one of us does it. I don't mean to, but I naturally will because I'm a fallen human being. It's kind of like the Baptist preacher, right? There's a Baptist preacher. He always preaches on baptism. And he preaches Genesis 3. And it's the points of Genesis 3 are uh, where Adam was, where the woman was, what the snake said, and then a few words about baptism. My point being, that, that's supposed to be funny, by the way, that, that preachers will, the preacher who preaches on baptism all the time is going to read baptism into every verse. One of the warnings about this preacher is, this preacher likes to read the providence of God into every text. So just be on guard. All right, just be on guard. You need to search the scripture and see if this is the case. Now, the difference in baptism and providence, of course, is providence really is in every verse. But I do think that's part of the point here. If you read what Saul's done when the Philistines have threatened them all through the account of 1 Samuel, he's done essentially nothing. You think about when Goliath is out there taunting the people of God. What's Saul doing? He's trembling in fear. He's trembling in fear with the rest of the Israelites other than David. But here's something unusual. He's about to capture David. He receives a message and he goes. God is at work to bring David to the throne. Friends, the reality is, and when I say the word providence, I mean God's intervention. And I believe God is always intervening at all times in our life to bring about his good plans. The, pro the providence of God is, is, is the fact that God is in control bringing about his purposes and his will. And the good news for us Christians where we can find great hope no matter what we face is that God causes all things to work together for good. There's a text that proves the providence of God is in everything. Romans 8, 28. He's causing all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. By the way, talk about an amazing promise. Romans 8, 28, one of the most amazing promises. You see Romans 8, 28 happening in 1 Samuel 20, 23, where God is orchestrating events to save David and, and to bring him to the throne. But here's the reality about the providence of God. God not only knows all, God is directing all. God is directing all. Go to the book of Job. So it's Sunday night. I'm going to give you a little bit more scripture than normal. I think it's fitting, right? 
We love the Bible. Look at Job 23. By the way, I also like to throw in a bit extra because you need to spend the rest of your life thinking about Job 23. And incidentally, the rest of the book of Job too. But let's look at Job 23. The point we're trying to make here is you find help from the providence of God. We find help from faithful friends. We find help from the Psalms. We find help from the providence of God, knowing that God is in control and he has good plans. And he'll bring about his will. Look at at Job 23. Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come to his seat. By the way, you misunderstand the early chapters of the book of Job if you read them and be like, okay, I should be like Job. No, you should not. Job wants to argue with God. Job wants to vindicate himself, and I'll show you why in just a minute. Job wants to give God a piece of his mind. Because remember how the book of Job begins. There's a righteous man. Oh, you mean the righteous suffer? Absolutely. Job and his friends don't understand this, though. Look at verse 5. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. By the way, Job's going to get his chance at the end of the book. Verse 6. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, now look what he says about God here. And this is where we get into providence and what Job believed. Some of which is skewed and in error, and some of which is true. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. And the point here is going to be, I can't see God, but I know he's there. Look at the next verse. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. So notice he's working, but I don't see it. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. Job understands. God knows what's going on in my life. And see, that's part of Job's problem. This is part of the dilemma of the book of Job. God knows what's going on with Job. The problem for Job is how can God do this? He knows the way that I take, verse 10. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job knows that he'll ultimately be vindicated by a righteous God. He doesn't understand why he's going through what he's going through. He doesn't understand that. But he knows ultimately after he's been tried, he'll come out as gold, which does happen in the last chapter, doesn't it? Keep reading. Look what he goes on to say. My foot has held fast to his steps. Now, here's where Job is going to recount his faithfulness, which is true. He's been faithful. One of the things the book of Job teaches you is, Faithfulness does not buy you a get-out-of-persecution-or-suffering-free card. Just because you're faithful doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. I mean, look at David. Here's the anointed king of Israel. David is at the heart of God's plans for humanity. It's a descendant of David that's going to bring about the Christ. And yet David goes through ten long chapters of wilderness. Look at what Job says in verse 12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. By the way, notice faithfulness measured by obeying the word of God. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. What an an example. More than I've valued my daily food, I've treasured God's word. 
Verse 13, but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will accomplish what he appoints for me. See, see Job is confident in the providence of God. And it's the providence of God that is Job's dilemma, because God has done this. God has allowed this to happen. And that's Job's dilemma. Look at, look at verse 14. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. The, the such things there are God's thoughts, God's plans. Verse 15. Now look at Job's response to this fact that God does as he desires, and God will do what he appoints for me. Therefore, I am, a, I am terrified at his presence. You're dealing with a being who does as he pleases and is all-powerful. I'm terrified at his presence when I consider I am in dread of him. And I would just take note. There's too little of that in modern-day Christianity. We don't recognize God as God and respond appropriately. By the way, the dread and terror of God should force us to flee to Christ because we need forgiveness. Christ is our only hope to come before God and to be forgiven. Verse 16, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me, yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. You need help from the providence of God. One more verse on that note. The end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy 4.18. By the way, Paul's last days were not easy. He was imprisoned. You can still go see the place in Italy where they believe his last days were spent. I mean, it's essentially a hole in the ground that is so gross, I'm not even going to take the time to, to explain it. And, and one of the things he talks about at the end of, in 1 Timothy 4 is that his friends abandoned him. Right? Here's, here's the Apostle Paul who had friends. You know, only Luke is with me now. He said, at my first defense, no one stood with me. He's in Rome. In the context of a church that he'd written the, book of, the, the letter to the Romans to, no one stood with him at his first defense. Look at, look at how he's wrapping up the letter of 2 Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice that. God not only knows what Paul is dealing with and going through, certainly he does that, but notice, notice God's involvement and, 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 and Paul's hope. He will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He's getting there by God bringing him there. And it's through the, the, the terrible Roman jail. He has hope and he finds help in the providence of God. This is one of the ways you survive the wilderness experience, knowing that God has purposes. One of the other, really the main point of the book of Job is what God tells Job is, Job, I'm doing lots of stuff. I'm in control of it all. And guess what, Job? You don't know what I'm doing. This is why those last chapters are full of all this language of, Job, do you know how the horse gets its strength? Uh, Do you know where the secret storehouses of hail are kept for the day of judgment? God is pointing out to Job all these things he doesn't know that God is in full control of. And the point is, there's a lot God is doing in the universe and in your life that you don't understand and that you do not know about. But you can know that God is there and you can know that God will bring you through. And that's what we see from David. And that's what we see here in this passage. We see God doing it in 1 Samuel 23. We see Paul believing it in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He will bring me safely home. Even though for years, David is like a fugitive on the run. And that's going to be the next few chapters of 1 Samuel. Friends, if you, if you look at the history of the Christian church, 
you will see played out in the history of Christianity the fact that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. And you keep in mind and remember who you are following. You are following a suffering Savior. One who, when he came to this world as it is, broken and cursed by sin, when he came, he was reviled and he was ultimately put to death, the only innocent man who ever lived. Friends, remember who you are following. And again, you find Jesus on the cross. He turns to faithful friends. There's, he speaks to John from the cross. He turns to the Psalms. He quotes Psalm 22 from the cross. And he trusts in the providence of God. He knows that God is going to work his good plans through that dark, terrible event. But it was through the path of suffering. And you see it with David. You see it with Christ. And we'll experience it if we strive to be faithful. Let's pray. God, help us to be faithful. Recognizing that in this world we will have tribulation, but God, we would take hope and take comfort because Jesus has overcome. He's conquered. He's experienced victory over the world. And God, that we would remember that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we'd recognize that this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. That we depend on Jesus to bring us through. And we see by your good providence and the examples all through your word, God, that you deliver your people. And you bring them safely to your kingdom, even though it's through the path of the wilderness. So help us, God, in the midst of those times to trust in you and to strive to be faithful. God, I do pray in the church we would love one another and care for one another. And that, that this would be a church where men and women can find faithful friends who would be the best friends that they could make in life. Help us all to be that person for others. God, help us to turn to your word and use your word and give, give your promises to those who are hurting, to encourage them in distress and in the times of the wilderness. And God, help us to trust your providence that we see it all through your word, that you work and you act for the good of your people and to bring about your purposes, which are invincible. And God, I pray we'd find great hope in that and we'd sing about that now because you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It was in the plan and providence of God. He put his own son to death. Isn't it amazing? It pleased God to crush him, Isaiah 53 says. How could it please God to crush his perfect son? To save sinners from their sins. And he'll save you from your sins. If you'll turn from your sins, repent, and turn to Jesus in faith. He'll forgive you. Let's do that as we sing together. If you need to, today is the day of salvation. As Christians, let's find great hope in what we've heard from his word.